Good morning, listeners, and I hope today finds you well. My name is Wilson McCoy with the College Hills Church of Christ here in Lebanon, Tennessee, and I want to say a big thank you for listening in to our weekly radio broadcast. This radio broadcast is one of several options that our church currently offers as ways for you to stay connected and informed with what's going on in the life of our community. So if you want to find out a little bit more about some of those other opportunities that we are currently offering and find out a little bit more about us as a congregation, then I would highly encourage you to go to collegehills.org. We can find out more about who we are as a church, and please know that we would love for you to come and join us whenever you can. And if you can't currently come and join us, that is okay. We have some online offerings, and you can find out more information there at collegehills.org. Over the last few weeks, we've been journeying through a series where we've been talking about encountering Jesus. And we've been looking at the four resurrection accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as examples of what we can learn about what it means to encounter Jesus today. And I want to keep with that theme today as we reflect on encountering Jesus and thinking about that through encountering Jesus in Scripture. Or, another way to say it, encountering the Word of God, Jesus, through the Word of God, the Bible. And so today we're going to be looking at a passage from 2 Timothy that I think can be instructive to us. It's a familiar passage, I'm sure, but one that I think is important for us to revisit. And so we're going to be in 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for the many gifts that you give us, We can often forget and neglect to pay attention to all the many ways that you bless us. And so give us eyes to see and ears to hear the many ways that you are generous and abundant to us in so many different ways. God, we're especially grateful for the abundance that we experience in Scripture for the gift it is to us, and for the ways in which it can still be a powerful, transformative part of our lives. 
And so I pray today for the gift of preaching and teaching and that you would give us all the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice and be transformed by it more in the image of your son Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Around the year 385 A.D., a young man was born in Britain who would end up changing the world. No one would have expected this from his strange journey of life. Captured by pirates at the age of 16, sold as a slave, living in a foreign land under a foreign tongue, and unsure if he would ever see his homeland again. And yet this young man named Patrick, better known as St. Patrick, would end up changing the world by changing the country of Ireland with Christianity. Patrick was sent to Ireland as a missionary in the middle of the 5th century and worked with the people there for nearly 30 years, preaching and baptizing people in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what ended up growing out of his mission efforts was a stream of Christianity that is sometimes called Celtic Christianity, composed primarily of Christians from Scotland and Ireland regions. Like any stream of Christianity, there are unique contributions that a given stream has to offer to other Christians. And one of the most meaningful aspects of this stream of Celtic Christianity that's been given to me is a dimension of their faith that they refer to as thin places. Thin places are the places and spaces where something special and significant happens for people of faith. Thin places are places and spaces where that distance between heaven and earth is particularly thin. Thin places are those places and spaces where the barrier between us and God seems particularly thin. That membrane feels particularly thin. Celtic Christianity is helpful because it reminds us that all of life is sacred, but that there are certain moments, spaces, places where that sacredness of life seems especially pronounced and vibrant. And whether you've ever heard of this phrase or not, I'm sure you could probably name some thin places in your life, places and spaces and moments where the presence of God seemed especially close. Maybe it's a retreat center. Maybe it's a certain part of the country. Maybe it's a memorable worship service. Maybe it's an object you possess. We all have spaces and places and moments where the presence of God seems especially tangible and close to us. If I were to sum up one of the central things Paul is trying to say to Timothy in our passage today, it is that Scripture should be viewed as a thin place for people of faith. Scripture, the Bible, is one of these spaces and places where the presence of God is especially vibrant and close. 
Paul writes to Timothy in our passage today, warning him to be on guard against deceitful teachers. Instead, according to Paul's instruction, Timothy is to remain firmly rooted in the beliefs taught to him as a child that grew out of the sacred writings taught to him. Based on what Paul said earlier, he's likely referring to Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. These women were some of the first to teach Timothy core beliefs of faith. These women taught him these beliefs based on the sacred writings of Scripture. Scripture is the place where Timothy first began to learn about Christ Jesus. To put a finer point of importance on what Paul is saying, he describes Scripture with a very important word, a word that we should pay attention to. He tells Timothy, and he tells us, all Scripture is inspired. And this word inspired is not one we should skip over too quickly because the word inspired is actually not one word, but it's two words. In the original Greek, the first word is the word for God, and the second word is the Greek word for to breathe. So the word inspired literally means God breathed or God breathing. It's one word in the English, but it's originally two words, a word for God and breathe, God breathed or God breathing. And so when Paul talks about Scripture to Timothy and tries to explain why Scripture matters, he reminds him first that Scripture is a place where we encounter God breathing. In other words, Scripture is a thin place a unique place where the barrier between heaven and earth is especially thin. The place where the distance between us and God is especially thin. And one of the reasons that I say that it's not just because of the word that Paul uses here, but also because of the two images that inform the use of the word. Now, specifically... There are two stories from the Old Testament we should keep in mind when we hear this word inspired. Because those two stories can help shape our imagination about what we believe when we say the Bible is inspired. Now, the first story occurs in Genesis 2, where we read an account of creation of humanity. And there we read that God formed a person out of the dust of the ground and breathed into this person the breath of life. And the person became a living being. In other words, God took something very basic, ordinary, and seemingly plain, that of dust and dirt, and God breathed divine life into and through that very thing. The person became a living being. This object of dust and dirt became something living. God breathes, and this person 
becomes alive with the fullest divine kind of life. That's the first story we should keep in mind when we hear the word inspired. The second Old Testament story that we should keep in mind happens in Ezekiel 37, where we read about the prophet Ezekiel being led out to a valley of dry bones where he is told to prophesy to the valley of dry bones, to speak to this valley of dry bones. So what does he do? He speaks to them. He speaks to the bones, and what happens is they are covered again with sinews and flesh and skin, and then finally God breathed into them, and the breath came into them, and they lived. In other words, God took something very dead, finished and seemingly hopeless, just a bunch of bones in a field, and God breathed into them, and they became alive. The bones became living beings. Again, the bones were transformed into these living beings. God breathes, and the valley of dead, dry bones is brought to life again. So we have this one story that we read about in Genesis 2, and we have this second story many chapters and books later in Ezekiel 37. And even though these two stories are chapters apart in the Bible, the thing we cannot miss about both of them is that the breath of God is not just for the sake of giving breath. God does not breathe into each of these situations as pointless acts, but as purposeful actions. In the first story, for those first humans in Genesis 2, the purpose is so that they can carry out the work of God while experiencing deeper relationship with God. For that nation of Israel in Ezekiel 37, the purpose is ultimately to bring them back to their land of Israel and so that they will know that God is their Lord. In both instances, in Genesis 2 and in Ezekiel 37, the ultimate purpose of the breathing of God is so that the person or the people can experience deeper relationship with God, a deeper knowing of God. And knowing is this very loaded concept throughout Scripture that's never just limited to head knowledge, but also heart knowledge. Knowing is about a holistic, living relationship with God. In Genesis 2, God breathes into humanity in order that they may be in deeper relationship with him and they can carry out the purposes of God in the world. In Ezekiel 37, he calls the people, the nation of Israel, back to relationship with him from dry bones to living beings in order for them to be a faithful presence in the world. God breathes so that people will know and that people will have purpose. God breathes to call people into relationship and then out of that relationship sends them out to be certain kinds of people in the world. We see this in Genesis 2. We see this in Ezekiel 37. And so when Paul uses this word inspired in 2 Timothy, 
When he uses this word, God breathed, to describe Scripture, he is making a significant claim for both Timothy and for all of us to hear and to soak in deeply. Because when we say that the Bible is inspired, it is to believe that God is breathing through these words in order to lead us into living relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To say that the Bible is inspired is to believe that God is breathing through these words in order to lead us into living relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call the Bible inspired because Paul calls the Bible inspired. And this inspiration is this conviction of God breathing. The thing that God does in Genesis 2, he does in Ezekiel 37, and he continues to do through the Holy Scriptures. The Bible, Scripture, these words of God are a place of encounter with the living God who calls us into deeper relationship with his life-giving trinity. Scripture is a thin place in that it has a unique potential in its ability to draw us deeper into life and relationship with God so that we can be sent out into the world to be a faithful people and a faithful presence. And whether we realize this or not, this is a challenging claim for many of us. More accurately, it's a challenging claim for me. (laughs) And here's the part of the sermon where I feel I need to be a bit confessional because I've been around Bibles my whole life. I've been around church my whole life, and so I've been around Bibles my whole life, and I'm grateful that I grew up in churches that placed a high value on the Bible, and they taught me that high value. I can remember this High value placed on Scripture from a very young age. It started when I was given my very first Bible when I was five from our church's preschool. Preschool graduation, I received a Bible. In fact, I kind of revered it so much, I didn't really touch it. I didn't want to mess it up. It was this beautiful white Bible with these gold embossed letters. I thought it was the coolest thing, and I didn't want to mess it up. And that spirit of reverence for the Bible, well, it carried with me as I grew up in my home church, as I graduated not just from preschool, but into other versions of different Bibles, from that white Bible to to study Bibles to student Bibles. I remember frequent Sundays where I would be in church and the preacher would have everyone hold up their Bible as a way to show what? That you were committed, that you were a committed Christian. The, The Bible was a symbol of those who took the faith serious. So you had your Bible open, you read it, you engaged it, you highlighted it, you wrote in it, you held it up when you were at church, and that carried with me that deep sense of reverence, and so I grew and I continue to be taught high value of Scripture, so I collected Bibles, I was taught Bible stories, I memorized verses, I participated in Bible Bowl to prove to to other peers that I knew my Bible better than they did. And then I went to college and I majored in Bible. I majored in the Bible. And so it was more of the same, this reverence for the Bible. Take the Bible serious, study it thoroughly. And all of those lessons I'm grateful for. I wouldn't change a single thing. 
I wouldn't change the reverence. I wouldn't change the deep attentiveness to study. Except one thing. The one thing that I would change, the one thing that I would teach myself if I could talk to my younger self is this simple point. The Bible is not an end in itself. The Bible is a means to an end. The Bible is not an end in itself. The Bible is a means to an end. We miss the point of the Bible and the point of Paul in our text if we just think that the point of the Bible is to know and revere the Bible. When the point of the Bible is to know and revere God. The point of the Bible is not to point us to itself. The point of the Bible is to point us to God. And if we miss that point, then we miss the whole point. Now, taking this illustration from another preacher, imagine today if we all decided to take a trip to the Grand Canyon and we got in a bus and we grabbed our map and we started out west. And as we traveled, we kept looking at the map to make sure we were traveling the right way. And finally, when we pulled into the parking lot of the Grand Canyon and we walked up to the edge of the Grand Canyon with our map, imagine if we looked at each other and said with enthusiasm, what a great map. What an amazing map this is. We love this map so much. You might think that was an unusual response to someone holding a map in front of the Grand Canyon. Because you might say to that person, you're kind of missing the point, right? Because you would be standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, but you would be obsessed with the map when the map is simply meant to lead you to something larger and more beautiful and expansive. The map is helpful, needed, necessary, but the map is not the point. The map is intended to point beyond itself. The point of the Bible is not to point us to itself. The point of the Bible is to point us to God. Or to borrow a phrase from another preacher, we should view the Bible kind of like we view John the Baptist. There was a man sent by God to witness to the light. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light. The role of John was simply meant to point us to the light of Christ. The Bible is not intended to point us to itself. The point of the Bible is to point us to God. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson who says this, Not everyone who gets interested in the Bible and even gets excited about the Bible wants to get involved with God. End quote. I'll say it again. Not everyone who gets interested in the Bible or even gets excited about the Bible wants to get involved with God. I think that quote gets at the heart of what it means to say that Scripture is inspired. To believe that God is breathing through these pages. That statement implies there is an actual living, breathing, being, waiting for us to engage and encounter Him in deeper relationship. And so with this conviction and belief, we we open the pages of Scripture with a certain kind of expectation, an expectation of encounter, that we, 
expect, we anticipate that we will meet, encounter God in this thin place. Not so that we can worship the place, but so that we can worship the one we meet in that place. That's what makes it a thin place. Because of the conviction that the one who is present there with us. So, currently, I'm, I'm trying to allow my reading of the Bible to move me into deeper knowledge of the God of love. This God of love we see active throughout the story of Scripture. I'm trying to read the Bible with the conviction that I'm meeting God in this place. I'm trying to read Scripture in the spirit of those early disciples that we have been talking about in these resurrection accounts who were surprised to meet the resurrected Lord in their midst. That they were surprised to meet the Word of God showing up to them in some of the most unexpected places. I'm trying to have that sense of expectation, that openness to surprise when I open the words of Scripture. That they might become a doorway for me to encounter God that they might become a pathway down which I can walk to walk deeper in relationship with God. One of the most helpful resources I've found in teaching me to read the Bible better is from a book called The Blue Parakeet by Scott McKnight. And one of the helpful discussions from his book is that he talks about reading as an act of listening, and that in listening, we are showing an act of love. When we love someone, we really listen to him or her. And so listening is a way we love people well. And it's a way we love God well. And so we encourage that that when we read the Bible, we should take on that same posture of listening. We read the Bible with a posture of listening rooted in a posture of loving God. We listen for God through Scripture because we love God. And as he talked about this word, listen... And how it's used in Scripture, he noted that there are three big ways that Scripture talks about listening. And this is what I want to close with. These three ways for us to think about listening to God through Scripture. Attending, absorbing, and acting. When Scripture talks about listening, I talk about it as an act of attending, an act of absorbing, or an act of acting. So first, we attend. In other words, we give our attention to the one who is speaking. We open ourselves to the person and we really attend to them. We give them our undivided attention. So when we read, we have the posture of attending to God, a posture of attentiveness. Secondly, we absorb. In other words, we really take in what the person is saying. And this is the difference when we can say in our Modern conversations, you hear me, but you're not really listening, right? We know what it means to to casually hear someone versus to really listen to them. We know when someone is not really listening. And so when we absorb, we take in the words like we would take in a fine meal. So we read Scripture slowly and with a desire to savor the words as they draw us into life with God. And then finally, we act. In other words, we actually do something based on what we've heard from the person from whom we've heard. We actually respond to what we've heard. Real listening always leads to life change, and so should our reading of Scripture. Now, if you want to dive deeper into 
practically what that looks like, I would encourage you to to find that book and read through it. I think it's a helpful guide, but I want to remember those three words as we think about what it means to say the Bible is inspired. We listen for the God who speaks and meets us in Scripture. So we attend, we absorb, then we act. I'm convinced more than ever that we need to be people of the book, but only to the extent that it helps us to become the people of God. I'm ever convinced that we need to be people who are deeply immersed in the Word of God, the Bible, but only to the extent that it transforms us more into the Word of God, Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm still convicted of what the Bible is, but I've changed my why. The what is that we read, memorize, study, engage, wrestle, and value Scripture highly with a sense of reverence. But the why? The why is no longer just so that I can be a good student of the Bible, but so that I can be a faithful disciple of Jesus. No longer is it just about knowing the Bible for the Bible's sake, but so that I can know God. And when we do that, then we will open the pages of Scripture, treating it like a thin place, a place to encounter God, the God who continues to call each and every one of us into living relationship so that He can breathe into us life-giving words so that we can be a life-giving presence to the world. Amen.